Hello, this is Helga Edwards, and I'm here with my husband, Bob. After today's podcast, it may be a while until we can do another, as we are currently in the middle of a move. Today, we will be reading Genesis chapter 38 from the New English Translation of the Bible, beginning at verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and stayed with an Adolamite man named Hirah. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. Judah acquired her as a wife and had marital relations with her. She became pregnant and had a son. Judah named him Ur. She became pregnant again and had another son, whom she named Onan. Then she had yet another son, whom she named Shelah. She gave birth to him in Kizib. Judah acquired a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord killed him. Then Judah said to Onan, Have sexual relations with your brother's wife, and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her, so that you may raise up a descendant for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be considered his. So whenever he had sexual relations with his brother's wife, he withdrew prematurely so as not to give his brother a descendant. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord killed him too. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up. For he thought, I don't want him to die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. After some time, Judah's wife, the son of Shua, died. After Judah was consoled, he left for Timnah to visit his sheep shearers, along with his friend Hira, the Adullamite. Tamar was told, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's clothes and covered herself with a veil. She wrapped herself and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the way to Timnah. She did this because she saw that she had not been given to Shelah as a wife, even though he had grown up. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute because she had covered her face. He turned aside to her along the road and said, Come on, I want to have sex with you. He did not realize it was his daughter-in-law. She asked, What will you give me in exchange for having sex with you? He replied, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. She asked, What will you give me as a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge should I give you? She replied, Your seal, your cord, and the staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and had sex with her. She became pregnant by him. She left immediately, removed her veil, and put on her widow's clothes. Then Judah had his friend Hirah, the Adolamite, take a young goat to get back from the woman the items he had given in pledge. But Hirah could not find her. He asked the men who were there, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam by the road? But they replied, There has been no cult prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I couldn't find her. Moreover, the men of the place said, There has been no cult prostitute here. Judah said, Let her keep the things for herself. Otherwise, we will appear to be dishonest. I did indeed send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. After three months, Judah was told, 
Your daughter-in-law Tamar has turned to prostitution, and as a result she has become pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. While they were bringing her out, she sent word to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man to whom these belong. Then she said, Identify the one to whom the seal, cord, and staff belong. Judah recognized them and said, She is more upright than I am, because I wouldn't give her to Shelah, my son. He did not have sexual relations with her again. When it was time for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. While she was giving birth, one child put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But then he drew back his hand, and his brother came out before him. She said, How you have broken out of the womb. So he was named Perez. Afterward his brother came out, the one who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. Here ends our reading of Genesis chapter 38. In addition to being filled with disturbing events, this passage has been the source of much controversy for a number of reasons. Some religious traditions, for example, interpret the story of Onan in a manner that supports St. Augustine's view of human sexuality. He considered sexual passion to be evil, even when expressed in the context of marital love and fidelity. He believed that sex could only be justified for the purpose of procreation. As a result of these beliefs, many generations have been taught to feel guilty about their sexual feelings. They have also been led to believe that it is evil to use any form of birth control. Genesis chapter 38, understood in its original language and context, teaches none of these things. To understand the story of Onan accurately, it is necessary to study the cultural norms of his day. According to a patriarchal custom, Tamar was expected to bear a son for her first husband Ur, so that his title and assets could be passed down to a legitimate heir. When Ur died before having a son, the responsibility fell to his brother Onan to ensure that Tamar gave birth to a son. This son would legally be considered the heir of Ur. Simply put, Onan was expected to have sexual relations with Tamar so that his late brother could have an heir. Onan, however, evidently had other motivations for having sex with Tamar. He appeared to go along with the ancient custom, but took steps to prevent Tamar from conceiving a child. His deceitful conduct resulted in the judgment of God. In light of the severity of the judgment which was death, he may have been found guilty of exploiting an ancient custom and his late brother's wife for his own sexual purposes. Another controversial issue touched on by Genesis 38 is the biblical significance of women wearing veils or head coverings. Concerned that feminine beauty might stir up allegedly sinful feelings in men, St. Augustine recommended that women veil their faces. In his 245th letter, he wrote that women should even veil themselves in the presence of their husbands. We still see echoes of this belief in so-called evangelical purity culture that teaches women to cover up so that they will not cause men to stumble. Ironically, in Genesis chapter 38, we see that women identified themselves as prostitutes in Judah's day by wearing a veil. 
The notion that God wants women to cover their hair and or faces so that men will not fall prey to sexual sin is proven to be false. Another serious problem in predominantly patriarchal societies is highlighted by Judah's response when he finds out that his daughter-in-law has been involved in prostitution. He declares that she should be burned to death for her sin. He says this all the while knowing that he himself had just had sex with a prostitute. His sexual double standard is highlighted by Tamar, who produces physical evidence, Judah's seal, cord, and staff, that he was the one she had sex with. Caught in his sin and hypocrisy, Judah changes his mind about Tamar's fate. She is allowed to live and gives birth to twin boys. Too often, patriarchal culture applies a double standard to men and women when it comes to sexual conduct. Men who become sexually active may be praised, and losing their virginity can be viewed as a rite of passage. Women, on the other hand, are often denigrated by the use of derogatory labels. Also, women are often made to feel responsible for the sexual behavior of men. I've often heard Bathsheba criticized, for example, in the context of David's sins of adultery and murder. For those unfamiliar with that story, King David sent for Bathsheba after he had watched her bathing. He had sex with her and then arranged to have her husband killed. Numerous commentators have found fault with Bathsheba for allegedly being immodest. When confronting David for his sin, however, the prophet Nathan did not blame Bathsheba. She did nothing wrong by bathing. God held David fully accountable for his own behavior. Similarly, men in our culture must be held accountable for their own sexual conduct. Another issue raised by Genesis chapter 38 concerns the use of makeup. In verse 14, the Common English Bible says that Tamar covered her face with a veil and then put makeup on, literally in that order. The oldest Hebrew text of this passage says that Tamar covered her face with a veil and then wrapped herself in a garment. The Aramaic says that she covered her face with a veil and then wrapped herself in a special dress. The Greek says that she covered her face with a veil and then adorned herself. The Greek word properly translated adorned here was similarly used by Plato to refer to a man who adorned himself by wearing his finest slippers. In other words, the language does not specifically refer to the use of makeup. Adorning could mean wearing makeup, but that meaning would need to be drawn from the context in which the word is used. It is unlikely that Tamar applied makeup to her face after covering it with a veil. Also, neither the Hebrew nor Aramaic texts of this passage support such a reading. Unfortunately, English translations like this can, and often are, used to tell women that it is sinful to wear makeup. I have heard men accuse women or teenage girls of quote-unquote looking like prostitutes simply for wearing eyeshadow. This kind of criticism is not biblical, and it is not loving. It is cruel, manipulative, and born from the same kind of fear harbored by men like St. Augustine. Wearing makeup is not a sin. Biblical passages that do talk about a person's appearance in church, 
literally warn against seeking special privilege through outward displays of wealth. We find such language directed towards women in 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10. Similar language is used regarding a man in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. While the Common English Bible may handle Genesis 38:14 poorly, it seems to do a better job with verse 21. Here, Judah is looking for the quote-unquote consecrated worker that he had sex with. This language accurately reflects the Hebrew and Aramaic texts of this passage that highlight the historical reality that prostitution was often connected with ancient cults. A consecrated worker was a prostitute who was dedicated to a god or goddess that was connected to fertility. The NET Bible, which we read from today, properly identifies that Tamar pretended to be a cult prostitute so that she could trick her father-in-law into getting her pregnant. Why is this important? Some patriarchal theologians claim that there was no such thing as cult prostitution in the ancient world. Some more specifically suggest that there was no cult prostitution in the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament. They make this claim in an attempt to deny the cultural context of some of the Apostle Paul's comments regarding women's hairstyles in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In this chapter, properly understood, Paul makes reference to the oral tradition that Jewish wives were required to cover their hair in public. This tradition created a clear distinction between Jewish women and Gentile women associated with fertility cults, who traditionally wore their hair unbound. In view of this tradition, a Jewish man could divorce his wife for failing to properly cover her hair. After highlighting this custom, Paul goes on to explain that Gentile Christian women need not be bound by it. In Christ, women literally have authority over their own heads. They are by no means required to follow the example of Jewish oral law. Failing to acknowledge these cultural realities, some patriarchal church leaders today continue to follow the example of St. Augustine by encouraging women to cover their hair as a universal symbol of female modesty and male authority. This kind of thinking is bolstered by inaccurate translations of 1 Corinthians 11 verse 10. In the New American Standard Bible, for example, women are told that they must wear a covering on their heads as a quote-unquote symbol of male authority. The Greek New Testament, however, does not say this. As Ronald Pierce has pointed out in an article he wrote for Christians for Biblical Equality, Paul did not tell Christian women to wear a symbol of male authority on their heads. He told them that they actually had authority over their own heads. Not only could they pray aloud and prophesy in church assemblies, they could also decide how to best honor God with regard to the customs of the day concerning hairstyles and head coverings. Does Genesis chapter 38 teach that sexual feelings are evil? Does it tell us that birth control is displeasing to God? Does it suggest that it is sinful for women to wear makeup? Does it support the notion that women should cover their hair to keep men from stumbling and to symbolically acknowledge male authority? No, 
Neither Genesis 38 nor any other passage in the Bible teaches any of these things. All of these beliefs are products of a fallen world, steeped in patriarchal culture. They are born of fear, shame, and misinformation. They cannot be found in our oldest manuscripts of the Bible, in its original languages, and they have no place in the kingdom of God. I am reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings.